Welcome to Always Searching, the podcast challenging conventional wisdom about health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. I'm delighted that you're here. Welcome to Mark My Words, a segment of the Always Searching podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. On June 24th, 2022, there was a seismic shift in Washington, D.C. A colossal earthquake occurred, and the epicenter was underneath the U.S. Supreme Court, which now ruled that Roe v. Wade was no longer the law of the land. This ruling had provided women across the nation with reproductive health freedom, the ability to make choices about their health, especially their reproductive health, under the 14th Amendment, the right to privacy. The late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said, The decision of whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, well-being, and dignity. When the government makes that decision for her, she's being treated as less than a full human responsible for her own choices. How profound. As a doctor, I want the government out of my patient's uterus as I would out of my patient's testicles or prostate gland. There is nothing more sacred than the relationship between a patient and her clinician. Nothing more sacred. There is privacy that is required. In fact, we even have laws in this country about health privacy. So now, with this ruling overturned, women in over 26 states in the United States have their right to make a choice at risk. Where abortion is now overruled, where it may be illegal, you know, women's health has always been polarizing, it has been politicized, and now it has been criminalized. It's almost as if a physician would be trading in his or her white coat for an orange jumpsuit in order to provide basic, competent health care. Reproductive health is a critical component of health for women, and it cannot be negated. I think what is so concerning is that as this ruling occurred, others are concerned because one of our Supreme Court justices, Justice Thomas, has said other issues can be on the line, other rights. For example, how about the right to marry whom you choose to marry? How about what you decide to do within your own home? How about the right to contraception? And if we take this even further, we have to think about what are the other risks that may occur? Are we going to arrest women who drink or use drugs during pregnancy or who don't follow through with their medications, such as to prevent HIV? How about men who don't take care of their bodies, which could impact potentially their sperm? You can see where we're going with this. There's also concern that what do you do if a woman has miscarried or she has an ectopic pregnancy where abortion may actually save her life? There are states now in the United States where it will be illegal to terminate a pregnancy even if someone has been raped, if there is an issue of saving a patient's life, or even with incest. It's extraordinary that in 2022, we're even addressing these issues, that this is even an issue after 50 years of precedent. I think on Friday, many of us felt such a sense of sadness. It was almost as if we had gone through the five stages of grief all within an hour. On Saturday, as I was preparing to give remarks for the International Medical Women's Association Conference, I really spent some time reflecting on my own professional journey focused on reproductive health. 
I actually even went back to my book, Stellar Medicine, A Journey Through the Universe of Women's Health. It's a part memoir, part guidebook, exploring the controversial issues that we faced and, and really examining it through a political psychosocial lens. One of my favorite chapters in the book is A Womb on the Moon. And that's because one day we will be going to the moon. Women will be setting foot on the moon. And issues regarding reproductive health will certainly come with her as she comes from the planet to the moon, to the lunar surface. But what this did for me is it kindled a lot of memories that I had put back in the recesses of my mind so that I could focus on all the issues that we're contending with today, the pandemic, economy, war, social injustice. But by going back and reviewing my own history, it helped me to understand that that decision that came down on June 24th was not surprising. It's almost as if we've had this cloud over our heads and finally, finally, it happened. It's as if there was an insidious cancer eating away at the body and then the patient went on life support and finally the plug was pulled. I just want to share with you a couple of my experiences that I had in my life starting as a medical student that helped to elucidate, to enlighten me that reproductive health was something that we needed to protect and we needed to be diligent in our protection of this basic core fundamental right. As a medical student in my first week at New York University School of Medicine, I was at Bellevue Hospital. And I remember a female obstetrician gynecologist came to speak to us, and she was sharing her stories about some of the patients that she had to treat who had had septic abortions because abortion at the time was illegal. And women were going to these back alleys or they were using hangers and they were coming in either dead or barely alive. And I remember my classmates and I nodded our heads in horror, but we really weren't too concerned because now... Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. Women had the protected ability to make choices, to have self-autonomy, to make decisions about their own health care, and especially their reproductive health. I then had an opportunity a few years later during my elective years to see how medical care was practiced in other parts of the country. And in one of the community hospitals that I visited, I was scrubbed in in a procedure, and it was for a 12-year-old girl, a child who had been raped by her father and was now pregnant. She was afraid to tell anyone, tell anyone that this had happened to her. And now it was too late to terminate the pregnancy. She was going to actually have to go through labor. I will never forget her screams, her shrieks of pain. You see, she was too young to deliver. Her body wasn't equipped to handle what was happening, and it was being torn apart. And that was the first delivery that I got to see. A few months later, I went back to New York and I was at Bellevue Hospital. And a woman was now having to undergo another procedure. She was entering into her third trimester and it was determined that she was carrying a fetus that had significant congenital abnormalities and now her life was also at risk. And it was decided, she had decided with her physicians and her family and her religious leaders that she needed to terminate this pregnancy so she could survive. And so we provided competent, compassionate health care to get her through this. So I had seen both ends of the spectrum. I then went to San Francisco for my training. 
and I lived across the street from a women's healthcare center. And on Saturday mornings, when I would leave very early in the morning to go work in the emergency room, I would see a group of men, generally white men, who were picketing and protesting in front of this women's health center. And when I would come back 12 hours later, they were still there. And I so often wanted to go up to them, but I was actually afraid for my safety, which was a bit ironic considering that they kept carrying signs, everyone deserves a life that they should come with me, come back to the hospital and see the babies that we called baby boarders because nobody was picking them up. These were babies that had congenital abnormalities. They had fetal alcohol syndrome. They were addicted to drugs. They were HIV infected and no one wanted them. In 1992, there was more legislation basically focusing on how one could trim abortion rights, how could one make it more difficult for a woman to have a right to choose what she needed to do to protect her health and well-being. And I remember that we were being told that we might be given a script that we would have to use to educate our patients in the privacy of our, our patient rooms. I was so appalled again by that that I actually protested in the streets with other clinicians and the public because, again, protecting that right for our patient and the sanctity of our relationship. I then moved to Washington, D.C., where I became the medical advisor for women's health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And we were trying to move women's health from that bikini medicine model where we focused on reproductive health and maybe breast tissue to beyond even interdisciplinary care to something that was truly comprehensive women's health. We created centers of excellence in women's health. We created centers of leadership and academic medicine where we engaged both male and female colleagues so that individuals could be promoted because of their abilities, not because or despite their gender. It was a really exciting time to see women's health move along that spectrum. I also was working with NASA and we had just put into place a real landmark policy on assisted reproductive technology where we would provide support for our male and female astronauts because space travel is such a dangerous environment. It's so toxic. It can be so toxic in our reproductive system so that we enabled our male and female astronauts to choose when they would be able to have a family. In fact, that policy is still in place over 20 some years later. But around 2005, 2006, I was invited to participate in some high-level meetings at HHS. And these were meetings to determine how we would establish a embryo adoption program, not donation, but adoption. And I recall one of my meetings where I asked a senior leader, why are we not focused on adoption of older children or fostering children? And I was told that's not what the government does. I then asked, what are you going to do with these embryos? Someone can't just put them in a coffee cup and put them on their mantelpiece till they're ready to use it. Are we going to provide health care so that there can actually be utilization of these embryos? And I was told again, no, that's not something we focus on. So basically, we were creating a two-tiered system where the very wealthy would have access and those who had less means would not. And this is what we're going to see here with overturning Roe versus Wade. Those who were poor, those are lower socioeconomic class, which generally impacts indigenous people, black and brown people, they will be most affected. I was so appalled by this embryo adoption program that I knew I could no longer stay. It was time for me to resign a position that I absolutely loved, but I felt it was important to have a voice, a voice for women so that I could help them protect their reproductive rights the rights that they deserve, all women deserve, in order to lead a life 
of health and wellness. So I resigned. And for that reason, I'm here with you where I can speak and share my view and hopefully share your views as well. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg, actually foresaw that. She knew that if Roe versus Wade was overturned, that was going to happen. Now, there have been some that said that Justice Ginsburg actually didn't believe Roe versus Wade should have been finalized, shouldn't have passed under the 14th Amendment. And it's interesting. I went back to try to review that, and I saw she had given an interview at the University of Chicago, and she was very concerned about the durability of this law. She was concerned that it would be overturned because people would start to pick away at it. She felt that laws should be slowly edged in so that the public can accept it, adopt to it. And she thought that it should come under the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution, focusing more on gender rather than privacy. She felt that that would provide greater security and durability. It wasn't that she was against a woman having the right to choose. So you can see we're playing legal gymnastics here. Where is the best way that we can find a way to protect a woman's right to choose? I'm reminded of our civil rights amendments, and I'm reminded of the civil rights movement. I live about 30 minutes. Again, in Washington, everything seems to be about 30 minutes from each other, from the Underground Railroad that Harriet Tubman led, our famous abolitionist. In a sense now, there's talk about creating another underground railroad using technologies to provide medical care for women who are in areas that may not have access to reproductive health care. I am reminded again of a time in our country around 2017 when Senator Warren, Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, was on the floor of the Senate. She was trying to make her points, and Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader at the time, was trying to get her to shut up and sit down. He didn't want to hear what she had to say, but she kept on going. And when she finished, he got up and said she was warned, but she persisted. I absolutely love that. And I even made a sign, which I put in my front yard. And I placed it there in the winter, and as we came into spring, flowers grew behind it, and I began to notice that people would stop in front of my house. The men would look a bit perplexed and the women took out their cameras to photograph it. And I realized we had another important message here. So mark my words, this fight is not over. We shall persist. We must persist. So until next time, we're always searching. Thank you so much for listening to Always Searching. Please share it with your community. This podcast was produced by Noah Jones and hosted by me, Dr. Sarah Lynn Mark. Until next time, we're always searching.